Um, so, but the story opens up and he says, call me Ishmael. And so that's basically, he's saying, for the purposes of this story, this is what you can call me. Uh, we never know whether that's his real name or not. Um, it's what he wants to be known by. Okay. So, um, I'm going to pass this out first. You can take one, take one and pass it. These are some study questions. Um, keep these, you know, fold them up, keep them in your book. And uh, as you go, you will find the answers to these, you know, as the story unfolds. It's just one page, front and back. Um, as you go, when you, come up, when you come across the answers to these, just, you know, jot them down or, or note them in your book, whatever. These are just to kind of keep you engaged in the story. Because like I said, it is long. Um, and these, these, the answers to these questions will, will kind of keep you centered in the most important parts of the story. Okay. So, I just told you the basic uh, kind of outline of the story. Um, so I want to, let me talk about, one thing we're going to do is we're going to read the whole first chapter uh, together. Um, one thing that's important to know about Moby Dick is that it's it's very consciously written as an epic. Okay, um, you all have read epics before, right? Do you remember what an epic is? What what makes something an epic? Yeah. Um, it's a specific style of writing that's almost poetic, but it basically tells the story of. The, a hero going on an adventure. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty close. It's, there, there are a lot of um, attempts at kind of defining what an epic is. But it's basically a story in which the, the, the plot of the story is not really that as important as the way that it's told. Right? So it's told in this grand style. And one of the things about an epic is... Um, you, it's very high stakes. Like what's at stake is the founding of a civilization or um, the protection of a civilization. So like in the Iliad, right? We have two civilizations against each other. And there are individuals in the story fighting, but they, they represent much more than just two guys, right? I mean, the battle between Achilles and Hector is a battle between almost like you know two different kinds of forces in the universe okay so an epic is a story that's told i mean there's a reason we use the word epic you know as kind of like a, a slang word now that was epic meaning oh that was seemingly trivial but really carried weighty consequences <laughs> uh that was epic it was big it, it, it was it meant something it was really important um so that's what an epic is um and so epic is an ancient genre of literature. Um, they, they are poems. Um, they're not so much poems anymore as you know, novels have taken on the epic uh, form. Hey, man. How's it going? Um, you can grab one of those sheets and on the uh, coffee table here. Yeah. And the, uh, there's a copy of the book up there for you. Um, 
I was starting off by talking about kind of what kind of book Moby Dick is, and, and we're talking about what an epic is. Um, so I'm kind of just reviewing what what is an epic. Um, so an epic, right? Those those, I mean, those go all the way back to ancient Greece, right? We've read epics: the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid is an epic, right? That's about the founding of the Roman people, um, and so. Paradise Lost uh, is an epic, for sure, right? That's the epic of epics, really. It's about humanity. What is mankind? Um, and so, epics as long... So, Homer wrote long narrative poems. The Aeneid is a long poem. It's a narrative poem. It, it tells a story. Um, a long around 17th century, 18th century... Uh, novels started appearing um, and a novel really kind of carried forward what the, what an epic was meant to accomplish like it's a long it's a long narrative book told in a in a high style um, with characters that represent high stakes consequences okay um, in other words what happens to a character really affects a whole people group or a whole nation or a whole city, uh, something like that. Um, so Moby Dick, there are three, um, three big influences in the way that he wrote. The first one is the Bible. Okay, the, it, specifically the King James Bible. The language... Uh, that he writes with, that Melville writes with. Um, it wouldn't be typically the language that just they, they spoke back then. I mean, this book is not that old. Um, it's it's uh, it was written in the middle of the 19th, 19th century. So 18... Let me see exactly what year. It's before the Civil War. Eighteen fifty-one. Okay, Herman Melville was part of a. Um, he was part of a wave of literature uh, that was called the. Um, oh, what was it called? Not the American Renaissance. Might have been the American Renaissance. Um, but it was basically the second generation of literature from the time that we formed as a nation, right, late 18th century, 1776, uh, 1789 is when our Constitution uh, was ratified. We became a nation. This is written 50 to 60 years after that. Okay, so that first generation of specifically Americans, they were, they were kind of pioneers. They were forming the nation, okay? Now, Melville and his, his buddy Hawthorne, who I'll talk about in a minute, um, guy named Emerson, they were part of this, this literary movement that was trying to establish American literature as American literature, not just a copy of English literature, British literature. Okay? We are now our own nation, which means we need our own literature. Um, so, but the Bible uh, was, was an influence. Shakespeare and uh, so I would say those are the greatest uh, 
influences on the way that he wrote this book, the way it sounds, uh, the words that he uses. Uh, but thematically, um, his, his greatest influence is Nathaniel Hawthorne, um, who wrote, he wrote The Scarlet Letter. We'll read that uh, this year together. Uh, he also wrote a lot of short stories. Um, his most famous thing is, is The Scarlet Letter. Um, but what they were doing at that point, uh, let, uh, let, me, let me read a little bit of this. The reason this is important, if you open up the first page, um, if you get past the introduction, and on the title page here, it says Moby Dick or the Whale by Herman Melville. Um, and then you turn to the next page, the inscription here, in token of my admiration for his genius, this book is inscribed to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, and so there's an essay in the back here. It's, it has excerpts from an essay that Melville wrote about one of Hawthorne's collections of short stories. Okay, And it's, I encourage you to, to uh, try and read that if you have time. But the, the gist of it is this. He, he read this collection of short stories, and he said, Oh, man, this guy Hawthorne is really on to something. Um, and what what he was what fascinated him about Hawthorne's stories is how Hawthorne's stories really explore the the mystery of evil. Okay, and what I mean by that is, um, so we're a brand new nation. We have all this optimism. We're starting to really crank it out. We're second generation now. We're really coming into our own. We're coming into maturity as a nation. Learning to stand on our own two feet, and here comes Hawthorne writing about the depth of the mystery of evil and and original sin, and how human hearts are fundamentally twisted. Um, and so Melville goes, "Oh man, here's a guy who's not afraid to tell truth." Even in the midst of a time of optimism and, and national growth and everything. Um, so that, that profoundly affected him. So he, here's, here's some things he said. He said, Hawthorne's soul um, is shrouded in a blackness, ten times black. But the darkness gives more effect to the ever-moving dawn that forever advances through it. He says, certain it is that this great power of blackness in him derives its force from its appeals to that Calvinistic sense of innate depravity. That would be like original sin. And if you have this, this is on page 654 in, in your book if you want to. Um, Calvinistic sense of innate depravity and original sin, from whose visitations in some shape or other... No deeply thinking mind is always and wholly free. So he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're really a deep thinker. Eventually, you're going to have to deal with this issue of sin. That humans, there's something evil about humans. There's an evil and a and a sin that lurks in the human heart. There's something depraved about humanity. Um, 
and he says it, it and this is really uh he says it stems from the the Calvinistic sense of innate depravity, which Calvinists um that would be like uh Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, a lot of people who founded America, who were very influential in the founding of America, the Puritans, uh the pilgrims, they were Calvinists. They were they believed in this total depravity of uh of humans. And so what he's saying is, all right, we have America, we have all this optimism, we're coming out of the Enlightenment, right? We were, we're a new world, we got a fresh start. And here's a guy, one of our very first truly American writers, talking about original sin. Now what's significant, and this is, this is something we're going to look at not just in Moby Dick, but all through this year. And this is, I think, one of the, one of the best things about American literature, is it has to wrestle with the idea that you cannot leave a place and leave evil back there. If you are a human, you wherever you go, you have brought evil with you. Why? Because evil's in the human heart. And so this is what fascinated uh, Melville about Hawthorne, because at this time, there's another guy named Emerson, who's, who's spouting this philosophy known as transcendentalism, and you don't have to... We'll, we'll talk more about this. I'm just kind of giving a little backdrop before we dive in here. Which basically says that you can look deep within yourself and there's this thing in there called intuition. And if you really... If you can really concentrate and focus and, and drown everything out, everything else that everyone's telling you, all the, if you can really just look inside yourself and listen to that, you'll see that that is the voice of God. And if you just follow that and stick with that, that's the best thing you can do. Uh, and he wrote all sorts of essays that were just really optimistic about the ability of humans to look within themselves to find what they should do, to find God, right? Now, there's some truth to that, right? Does God create you in his image? Yes. Um, but... Hawthorne and Melville both would have rejected completely that idea that that man is essentially good and that the, the, the main hindrance to man is is from outside. Right? It's it's a social uh obstruction, right? It's it's a um someone giving you bad advice or you being afraid of something. No, you, you can you can Look inside yourself and you can do it. We still see this kind of philosophy a lot these days. You know, follow your dreams. Believe in yourself. That's essentially what Emerson was really focusing on. And so guys like Hawthorne and Melville said, wait a minute. No, no, no. We, we see what you're saying. But have you ever dealt with humans? <laughs> like, have you ever just had an interaction with a real human? Do you believe that they are infused with the divine life spark and the the oversoul that, that is, is flowing through them. No. A lot of them are pretty hard to get along with because they're pretty self-absorbed. Why is that? Right? Um, and so the whole myth of the Enlightenment, which is really what gave birth to the ideas that, that um, birthed America, is that um, the only thing between you 
and doing the right thing is is a lack of knowledge. That is is what you need to guide you is is enlightened self-interest. If you were just well informed enough, you'd be able to see the right decision and make it. And Hawthorne and Melville were way ahead of their time. Maybe not way ahead of their time because 10 years after this was written, what happened in American history? Another significant event around the 1860s. Oh, come on. World War II? No, that's 1940s. 1860s. What happened in America in the 1860s? Come on, guys. Girl, come on. The 1860s. Oh, you guys. The Civil War. The The worst thing to ever happen to America. Um, The Civil War. Ten years after this. Right? And Civil War really... Why did the Civil War happen? It was because some lingering issues that never really got resolved when the Constitution was formed. Right? Particularly surrounding slavery, but more more <clears throat> fundamentally, the, the tricky way of navigating state, states' rights versus a federation, a, unite, a union, right? Um, there was always a disagreement. The South was always kind of leaning toward more states' rights. And the the North was always wanting more of a more centralized power, um, and so some of the holes that never got filled in the founding of the Constitution eventually bubbled over into Civil War. Um, there were a lot of there was economic reasons. Um, the, slavery was a part of it, but there were there were a lot of different reasons. Um, Thank goodness you have U.S. history against Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's fine. It's been I I, I understand. It, it's been what eighth grade was the last time you studied American history. That's okay. Um, where were we? Oh, so they were they were very skeptical of this, this philosophy, that was saying you know within you is the divine spark, and and you need to look within yourself and follow your intuition, um, rely on yourself. That's the highest. Uh, that's the highest authority, right? If it doesn't sit well with you and in your innermost self, then reject it. Okay. And so Hawthorne and Melville were very skeptical of that and saying, no, there's something fundamentally flawed in the human heart, or else, with all of our attempts at fresh starts, we would have left all that behind by now. Right? Something is stuck with us that makes things rotten. Okay. Um, and so. Melville loved that about Hawthorne, that he plunged into that. He wanted to explore it. And that's what he says is this blackness. He goes straight into the blackness. He wants to, figure, he wants to plumb the depths of that mystery. Okay. So I, I want to I point out also that those two forces... That those two ideas, number one, that um, this this Calvinistic sense of humans are fundamentally flawed and they are totally depraved um, versus this individualism and optimism and um, this kind of you follow your intuition, believe in yourself. Those two forces at war with each other 
really defines American, what's distinctly American about American literature, okay? Um, because it's it's only America that, America that can say that, hey, you are endowed by your creator with certain unalienable rights. Do you know where that comes from? Please tell me you know. You are endowed by your creator. It's actually what, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Do you know where that comes from? We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. Is it the Constitution or the Declaration? I think it is. Uh, no, it's not. It's in the Declaration of Independence. The preamble of the Constitution says, We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, must establish justice to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, and etc. Okay, I always get those two mixed up. So, you as an individual, are fu- you have fundamental worth and value. Right? That's the basis of our Constitution. Each individual has certain unalienable rights. But then theology tells us, Scripture tells us, that there has been a, a fundamental flaw that has come on the human race. And so how to get from this flawed state into this state where an individual can really thrive and be who they need to be, that tension has always been with us as Americans. Okay? And um, that's really where a lot of our great literature comes from, is contemplating the difference between evil, individual worth, and value. How do you, how do you reconcile those things? Um, I will point out, though, that our, that our Constitution is based on the fact that is based on the assumption that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? And so nowhere in our Constitution is there a place for someone to, who, who can get power over people absolutely. Right? Because we, we assume that people cannot wield power without being corrupt. Um, that's what that's what a democracy is about. You, you, you checks and balances, right? You ever heard that phrase? Checks and balances. That's the way our government runs. The president, in order to do something, uh, he can only sign laws that the legislative branch writes. And they can only write laws that uphold the Constitution, which is judged then by the judicial branch. Okay, so all these these president signs it into law, the legislative branch writes the laws, and the judicial branch judges uh, cases, they hold it up to the law and see whether it's constitutional or not. Um, So, back to uh, Melville's admiration of Hawthorne, which is what he dedicates this book to. It is that blackness in Hawthorne of which I have spoken, that so fixes and fascinates me. Um, And he says, Hawthorne is like Shakespeare. And here's what he says. This is on 655. Um, 
This blackness it is that furnishes the infinite obscure of his background, that background against which Shakespeare plays his grandest conceits. So he said it's the same, Hawthorne writes against the same background as Shakespeare, which, and he says it's this blackness, it's this uh, real honesty about the state of the human heart, okay? And he says, it's not, then he talks a little bit about Shakespeare. He says, you know, Shakespeare, he's popular because of his dramatic flair. But what really makes Shakespeare great is that you get these little glimpses. And here's what, how, these little glimpses of truth that just come in, uh, and they're little chunks. He says, it's those deep, faraway things in him, that is, in Shakespeare, those occasional flashings forth of the intuitive truth in him, those short, quick probings at the very axis of reality. Right? He says it's those little moments in Shakespeare where it's a line or two or three, we really get to the heart of the nature of the universe, like the big questions of life. Who are we? What are we in this world? You know, it's like to be or not to be. <laughs> These quick flashings forth. Um, he says, these are the things that make Shakespeare, Shakespeare. And he says, and this is what makes Hawthorne great. Is that's where he goes. That's where he sets his stories. Um, and this is great. And he says, and if I magnify Shakespeare, it's not so much for what he did do as for what he did not do or refrain from doing. For in this world of lies... Truth is forced to fly like a scared white doe in the woodlands, and only by cunning glimpses will she reveal herself, as in Shakespeare and other masters of the great art of telling the truth, even though it be covertly and by snatches. So this is what he says. In, in, in Shakespeare, these, these little moments where you go, this guy knows what's up. He has a deep understanding of the way the world works. And it just pops in here and there. And he, so he says, I think Shakespeare, what, what makes him great is that most of what he knew lies there in the grave with him. We don't know everything he knew. All we know is that he was able to punctuate his stories with these moments of brilliance. Who knows what he was leaving out, you know? All right. So he says, some may start to read of Shakespeare and, and Hawthorne on the same page. Believe me, my friends, that men not very much inferior, inferior to Shakespeare are this day being born on the banks of the Ohio. You read that again. My friends, men not very much inferior to Shakespeare are this day being born on the banks of the Ohio. So he really believes in America's potential as a great literary nation. He says, this guy Hawthorne gives me hope. Because I see in him the same kind of brilliance and genius that was in Shakespeare. And if then this is just the beginning. I guarantee you there are more people not much inferior to Shakespeare being born in this country right now. So he has a very high and optimistic view of where American literature can go. And he calls then for originality. He says, let's not try and make European literature here in America. We are people... And we are in a place, let's write as people in this place. We're not in Europe. There are things different than America. There are things different in America than they are in Europe. Right? 
there's a lot of space here. There's a lot of, uh, our laws are different. Our government's different. The way we see ourselves as individuals in society is different. So let's write literature that deals with that. Um, and he, he, he concludes with this. It's not meant at all that American writers should studiously cleave to nationality in their writings. Only this, that no American writer should write like an Englishman or a Frenchman. Let him write like a man. <laughs> For then he will be sure to write like an American. Let us boldly contemn all imitation, though it comes to us graceful and fragrant as the morning, and foster all originality. Okay, so he calls for a truly American literature uh, to emerge. And he says, listen, Hawthorne, if Hawthorne is a, a sign of things to come, we are headed to great places as a nation. Um, that would rival Shakespeare. Now, in hindsight, we've never rivaled Shakespeare in any of our literature. No matter what you say, uh, no matter what anyone says, no American has ever come close uh, to doing what Shakespeare did. Uh, we've had great stuff, uh, and I would say this is one of the greatest, um, but uh, in terms of literature that competes on a national level, I really don't think you can do much better than Hawthorne and Melville. And they were first, kind of first, the first wave. From there, it just gets all a little more wacky. Okay, all of that to say that he dedicates this book to Hawthorne in admiration of his genius. And he just described what he, what he saw as the genius of Hawthorne, which is what? His ability to see into the real heart of things, into the way the world works, into what's really true. This, and he, he calls it this blackness. There's something that's truly uh, black or evil about the human condition. That Hawthorne's not afraid to just look away from in, in blind optimism. So that should tell us something right there. We're not even into the first chapter. That should tell us something of what's ahead for us in this book. It's going to deal with things of deep philosophical significance. We don't have to be intimidated by that. We can just know that what he's trying to do here is to grasp at some really hard questions about life, okay? And so, um, Ishmael is the primary uh, character in this book in the sense that he is the one going on the journey. He is the one that, that returns from the journey to tell us the tale, okay? And he wants to give us the tale. This is, spoiler alert, right? Everyone dies except Ishmael. Okay, he he alone survives, and that's important to know because as you go through the story, you're going to be reading the story of a guy who is thinking back, thinking back on the journey, and saying, "What have I learned?" He set out to to answer some hard questions, and he he wants to write down what he learned from his voyage. Now, I'll say this about Ishmael. He's he's verbose. He's wordy, okay? Uh, but here's what he's doing. He will, he will switch between telling the story, which is what we call narrative, right? And uh, he'll go into long sections of exposition. So he'll be going along, uh, they're wailing, Ahab's doing something crazy on the ship, and then there will be a whole chapter um, on the rope, 
and he'll talk about the rope. And you're going to say, well, this is boring. Why, why am I, I, why, I don't need to know nearly this much detail about whaling. But every time that he goes into a, a patch of exposition, he ends up trying to find something about the deep meaning of life in that thing. What can that thing tell me about what life is all about? Okay, so that should give you a little more, a little more help as you approach these, these long descriptions of stuff. What he's doing is he's trying to tell you how on this voyage I was really looking for the meaning of life and everything. And here's, after, after all this stuff, here's what the rope tells me about life. Here's what the way that we cut into the whale's blubber tells me about the meaning of life. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to look at all that stuff and then look into it, look, look beyond it and, and draw deeper truth from that. So he's on a journey, he's on a quest. What's his goal? He says it's to, to discover the ungraspable phantom of life. Okay. Um, it just so happens that part of his quest includes being witness to another quest, which is Ahab's quest. Okay. And one real fascinating thing is to try and compare Ishmael with Ahab. They're very different, right? Ishmael is sort of like, he's one of us. He's kind of the everyman. Um, Ahab is this guy out of a Shakespeare play. A high tragedy, right? He is the prototypical tragic figure. Um, What happens in a tragedy? You have someone of real high status who through a flaw in his character experiences this real tragic downfall, usually ending in death. This is exactly what we see in Ahab. Okay? Um, So, I want to read the first chapter and point out some things that the first chapter shows us that will become things to look for as the story unfolds. Okay? Does that make sense? Like any good epic, he packs all of his primary themes in the opening section. Uh, in in a in a epic, it would be called an invocation or a proem, meaning like a pre. It's sort of like the preface. Um, the Iliad starts out of the wrath of Achilles. I sing. Right, that's the theme of the Iliad. Um, the Odyssey start war. I or no. Uh, sing of me muse and through me tell the story of the man. Uh, Achilles, or not Achilles, Odysseus, a man of twists and turns, driven time and time off course, right? So there in the opening of the Odyssey, he's saying, here's what this story is all going to be about. So the thing about an epic is there's no mysteries. You know where it's going to end up. It's about walking through that experience and, and, and listening to the way that the story is told. That's what where the real power of an epic is found. All right, so chapter one, you can open there. Well, I'll point out one more thing. So you've got the inscription, you've got the table of contents, and then there's these extracts, and then and um, or this etymology and extracts. So the etymology, um, etymology just means like the history of a word. So he gives the etymology of whale, where that word came from. Okay. 
the extracts. He has all these quotes from all sorts of different literary sources about whales. Okay? And so think about what why would he include that at the beginning here? Etymology and extracts. He's a guy who's who's dead set on finding the meaning of life. And he's got all these excerpts here. He is trying to uh, find the significance of whales. He's like, I've had a profound experience on this whaling voyage. And I want to tell this tale. I'm going to look at all these places where all these ancient works of literature mention whales. I'm going to try and find what is a whale? Is it? And he, he goes back to the Bible. He talks about Leviathan in the book of Job and, and these great creatures of the deep. And he says that this was this is more than just a whaling voyage. There is something in here that, that really tells me um, the meaning of life. So he's very thorough, okay, in his exploration of in his, in his search for truth. So chapter one's called Loomings. And that's there's a lot of um, there's a lot in that word, loomings. What does that sound like to you? When something's looming, what, what does that mean? Sounds sad. Yeah, uh, yeah, sad. A little bit um, like foreboding. Like there, there's maybe some. Uh, Maybe some difficulty ahead, right? What, what else? Oh, you're getting into it now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Loomings. Yeah, loneliness. Loomings. It's like something's ahead. There's. It's almost like a sense of dread. Um, what's a different a different way of completely looking at it uh, what's a loom you know what a loom is you ever been to Boonesboro or any of those other places remember if you make a pot holder on that, that little it's a loom kind of you ever been to a, yeah it's like a weaving thing that's how they used to weave fabric together so there's loomings like foreboding, um, but then there's also weaving together, right? And so here in this chapter, it's even with the title of the chapter, what he's telling us is here's some foreshadow of what's to come, and also here's all the threads of the story that are going to come together. Does that make sense? Loomings. Isn't it amazing how someone can just plop one word in there and it like is the best word. <laughs> All right, so he says, call me Ishmael. And the idea there, I think, is is one of, of wandering and exile. Um, one thing to look for as you go is all the places where he uses biblical names. Um, Ahab, Ishmael. There's guys named... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a prophet named Elijah, who's a crazy, crazy prophet. Probably Elijah's favorite guy. Um, he's sort of like the uh, soothsayer in Julius Caesar. You know, he's he comes and 
declares this oracle over the... Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail a little, sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen um, and regulating the circulation. These are all sort of antiquated ways of saying I'm depressed and you know I, I, I'm feeling down, down about myself. I need to just get out. I need a change of scenery. Right? Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, Whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul. Have you ever had a damp, drizzly November in your soul? It's a great, it's a great line. Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. <laughs> this is my substitute for a pistol and a ball, which would be like, I'm going to shoot someone, right? Uh, let's, let's, let's get out of time. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. So homicide, homicidal thoughts, suicidal thoughts, let's go to sea. <laughs> There's nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feeling towards the ocean with me. Um, well, I'll, I'll keep reading. I'm going to say something about that. Uh, there, is now your, there is now your insular city of the Manhattos. That's Manhattan. He's from New York. Belted round by wharves as Indian islands by coral reefs. Commerce surrounds it with her surf. Right and left... The streets take you waterward. Its extreme downtown is the Battery, where that noble mole is washed by waves and cooled by breezes, which a few hours previous were out of sight of land. Look at the crowds of water gazers there. Circumambulate the city. That means walk around. <laughs> he likes big words. Ishmael does. Circumambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon. Go from Corlier's Hook uh, to Coenties Slip, and from thence by Whitehall northward. What do you see? Posted like silent sentinels all around the town stand thousands upon thousands of mortal men fixed in ocean reveries. What he's describing is, and this is classic Ishmael, okay? He says, hey, whenever I feel like this, I need to get out to sea. But really, you know, there's something in every man that really sees that, that, uh, meditative uh, that, 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 that water there's something about water that really is meditative and leads you to, to contemplate the deeper things so he says let me prove this just you know walk around the city sometime how many people are just standing there just looking out into the water what is that what's behind that so this is Ishmael right he's, he's inquisitive he's, he's observational right um some leaning against the spiles, some seated upon the pierhead, some looking over the bulwarks of ships from China, some high aloft in the rigging, as if striving to get a still better seaward peep. But these are all landsmen, of weekdays pent up in lath and plaster, tied to counters, nailed to benches, clenched to desks. How then is this? Are the green fields gone? 
What do they hear? Why, why do they need to come to water? Well, and you could say, you know, for us, why does everyone want to go to the beach on vacation? Or a lake? What is it that draws us to water? But look, here come more crowds, pacing straight for the water, and seemingly bound for a dive. Strange. Nothing will content them but the extremest limit of the land. Loitering under the shady lee of yonder warehouses will not suffice. No, they must get just as nigh the water as they possibly can without falling in. Why are there pools, right? If everyone wants to go to a body of water. Are they... Uh, and there they stand, miles of them, leagues, inlanders all. They come from lanes and alleys, streets and avenues, north, east, south, and west. Yet here they all unite. Tell me, does the magnetic virtue of the needles of the compasses of all those ships attract them thither? Once more, say you are in the country, in some high land of lakes. Take almost any path you please, and ten to one it carries you down in a dale and leaves you there by a pool in the stream. There is magic in it. Let the most absent-minded of men be plunged in his deepest reveries. Stand that man on his legs, set his feet a-going, and he will infallibly lead you to water, if water there be in all that region. Should you ever be athirst in the great American desert, try this experiment. If your caravan happened to be supplied with a metaphysical professor, yes, as everyone knows, meditation and water are wedded forever. Meditation and water are wedded forever. So here Ishmael has gone from, you know, I think I need to I think I need to get to sea. But really there's something in every human. There's something deep inside every human that something about water draws them to it. So do you see how Ishmael's mind works here? He says, hmm, I'm experiencing this. I wonder if that's I wonder if there's something just about the mystery of life in this. We're all drawn to water, right? And he tries to find deep meanings in, in everything, okay? In every one of his experiences. But here's an artist. He desires to paint you the dreamiest, shadiest, quietest, most enchanting bit of romantic landscape in all the valley of the Sacco. What is the chief element he employs? There stand his trees, each with a hollow trunk, as if a hermit and a crucifix were within, and here sleeps his meadow, and there sleep his cattle. And up from yonder cottage goes a sleepy smoke. Deep into distant woodlands winds a mazy way, reaching to overlapping spurs of mountains bathed in their hillside blue. But though the picture lies thus tranced, and though this pine tree shakes down its sighs like leaves upon this shepherd's head, yet all were vain, unless the shepherd's eye were fixed upon the magic stream before him. So now he's getting into art. And guess what? Artists, when they're trying to paint a landscape, the landscape doesn't quite do it for you unless there's some sort of water in it. Right? Do you see how he's getting into all these areas of life just because he decided, you know, I, something in me wants to go to sea right now. And he, this has launched him on this extreme digression on the mystery of water and humans' attraction to it. Okay. Go visit the prairies in June when for scores on scores of miles you wade knee deep among tiger lilies. Where is the one what is the one charm wanting? Water. There's not a drop of water there. 
Were Niagara but a cataract of sand, would you travel your thousands of miles to see it? Why did the poor poet of Tennessee, upon suddenly receiving two handfuls of silver, deliberate, deliberate whether to buy him a coat, which he sadly needed, or invest his money in a pedestrian trip to Rockaway Beach? Why is almost every robust, healthy boy with a robust, healthy soul in him at some time or other crazy to go to sea? Why does Pirates of the Caribbean make so much money? Right? You know, <laughs> these are all these questions that he had. He's so inquisitive, right? Why upon your first voyage as a passenger did you f- yourself feel such a mystical vibration when first told that you and your ship were now out of sight of land? Why did the old Persians hold the sea holy? Why did the Greeks give it a separate deity? Poseidon, right? The god of the sea. And own brother of Jove. That's uh, Zeus. The Greeks thought the ocean was the brother of Zeus himself. So now, where he, where is he gone? He's gone to typical human experience. He's gone to art. Now he's going to religion. He's all of these different areas of questioning. He's a, he's diving into all of those areas with this one question. What is it that, that draws humans to water? And then he goes and just, he scours all of his knowledge to figure out what might have anything to do with that. So this is how his mind works. This is the kind of thinking and questioning he's going to apply to every aspect of the whaling voyage, okay? Surely all this is not without meaning, and that is what he wants to find. What's the meaning behind all of this? What does that mean? What does it mean? And still deeper, the meaning of that story of Narcissus. Who, because he could not grasp the tormenting, mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. So now he's getting into myths. And these myths are typically like real deep archetypal stories of experience. So you know the story of Narcissus, right? The myth of Narcissus. He, he, he fell in love with his own image reflection in the water so here what what's what he's just scouring his his the catalog of his mind for what's water what's the meaning behind this draw to water Ooh, narcissus he gets all the way there and this is what he says he plunged into it and was drowned but that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans It is the image of that ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. So what's he saying? He's not just, this isn't, he's not just talking about humans' attraction to water. He's saying, there's something deep inside of us that wants to get away from the day-to-day life. And at some point, we need to go and contemplate what this is all about. And we 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 go and we and it's water, but also, what do we see in that water? We see ourselves. We might discover who we are, right? And so he says, "This is this is the key to it all." We all there's something in us that that yearns to find truth, to find meaning, to to know who I am. That's what we want to find. We want to know what our place in the universe is. Okay? 
Now, when I say that I am in the habit of going to sea, whenever I begin to grow hazy about the eyes and begin to be overconscious of my lungs, I do not mean to have inferred that I ever go to sea as a passenger. So we're, we're not going to be able to get through all this. Um, he goes on and he talks about why he goes as a sailor, which is basically just a common hand. Right? He gets paid, not very much. He's not a captain. He doesn't have authority. Uh, but he does go as a, as a sailor. Um, he gives a lot of reasons for that, obviously. He likes to give a lot of reasons for everything. Um, so he says this. No, when I go to sea, I go as a simple sailor, right before the mast, plumb down into the forecastle. Hey, Madison. Hey. There's a book right up there for you. Aloft there to the royal masthead. True, they rather order me about some and make me jump from spar to spar like a grasshopper in a May meadow. And at first, this sort of thing is unpleasant enough. It touches one's sense of honor, particularly if you come of an old established family in the land, the Van Rensselaers or the Randolphs or the Hardy Hardy Canutes, I don't know how to say it. Uh, and more than all, if just previous to putting your hand into the tar pot, you have been lording it as a country schoolmaster, making the tallest boys stand in awe of you. The transition is a keen one, I assure you, from a schoolmaster to a sailor. You know, he's just a lackey. He, they tell him, you know, they give him orders, and he has to obey the orders. Okay. Uh, it takes a strong decoction of Seneca and the Stoics to enable you to grin and bear it. But even this wears off in time. What of it if some old hunks of a sea captain orders me to get a broom and sweep down the decks? What does that indignity amount to, weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? So, what he's talking about here is, it can kind of hurt your honor when you go and you just get ordered around. You, as an American, you're not used to being ordered around, right? What if you're some school teacher and all day long you're supposed to get kids to fall in line? It's going to be kind of hard for you to swallow getting punched around and, and you know, barked at and everything. Um, he says, but, you know, when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a deal. This is important because Ahab is the exact opposite. Right? He is the exact opposite. He cannot stand. Uh, he says, what does that indignity amount to, Wade, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? Ahab cannot stand something uh, being... In, more in control of him than than he himself. Okay, so this is right here in this opening chapter. We see one of the differences between Ishmael and Ahab. Ishmael is able to go, eh. You get used to it. Ahab is not not. That's never going to happen for him, right? Ahab gets to the point where he says, "I would smite the sun if it insulted me." Right, and he's like so indignant at what has happened to him. He says, there will be nothing that rules over me. I will be in charge of my destiny. Not even fate itself. I will rule my life. Uh, and Ahab is unable to say, eh, I'm just powerless in the face of some things. Right. So Moby Dick is that thing that Ahab says, he exercised power over me. I will exercise power over him. I will pursue him. I will kill him as a uh, as an expression of my desire to be the Lord of my own life. Right? And that is what drives him. And Ishmael is able to say, eh, sometimes, sometimes you're a sailor, sometimes you're a school teacher. And here's what he says. 
what does that indignity amount to weighed, I mean, in the scales of the New Testament? What's the New Testament? Right? The ultimate indignity. It's the cross. Right? So he says, when you, when you think about, if we're talking about indignities, eh, being a sailor, being barked at, that's not that bad. Um, so he says, well then, however the old sea captains may order me about, however they may thump and punch me about, I have the satisfaction of knowing that it is all right. That everybody else is one way or other served in much the same way, either in a physical or metaphysical point of view, that is. And so the universal thump is passed around, and all hands should rub each other's shoulder blades and be content. That's a key word, because Ahab's never content, and he never will be content. Um, another reason he gives why he goes to a sailor, he's like, because you get paid. Who doesn't like getting paid? It's better to get paid than to have to pay. So, there you go. <laughs> um, and so he says, Finally, I always go to sea as a sailor because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. For as in this world, headwinds are far more prevalent than winds from astern, that is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim. So for the most part, the commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere at second hand from the sailors on the forecastle. Um, but wherefore it was that after having repeatedly smelt the sea as a merchant sailor, I should now take it into my head to go on a whaling voyage? So I've been, I've been sailing before. Now, why did I go on a whaling voyage? Ah, this, he says, this is the invisible police officer of the fates who has the constant surveillance of me. And this is another primary theme in uh, epics is the idea of fate. That characters can try all they want to outsmart fate, but eventually fate is going to have its way. So here he mentions fate. Who has the constant surveillance of me and secretly dogs me and influences me in some unaccountable way. He can better answer than anyone else. And doubtless, my going on this whaling voyage formed part of the grand program of providence. Now that's just kind of the Christian word for fate. Providence means like it's God's hand sort of guiding things to where they need to go. Providence. That's how. That's what a Calvinist would call uh, fate. Fate is sort of the pagan idea. And providence is the Christian idea. And so here he says, yeah, fate, providence, kind of the same thing. Uh, it's a grand program of providence that was drawn up a long time ago. It came in as sort of a brief interlude and solo between more extensive performances. Now, listen, he's, he's talking about stage language. Stage language. Part to play, brief interludes, solo, performances. I take that this part of the bill must have run something like this. Grand contested election for the presidency of the United States. Whaling voyage by one Ishmael. Bloody battle in Afghanistan. He's like, I'm just one more blip on a pretty full, in a pretty full uh, bill, a program. I cannot tell, though I cannot tell why it was exactly that those stage managers, the fates, put me down for this shabby part of a whaling voyage, when others were set down for magnificent parts and high tragedies, that would be like Ahab, 
and short and easy parts in genteel comedies, or jolly parts in farces, though I cannot tell why this was exactly. Yet, now that I recall all the circumstances, I think I can see a little into the springs and motives which, being cunningly, cunningly presented to me under various disguises, induced me to set about performing the part I did. Besides cajoling me into the, the delusion that it was a choice resulting from my own unbiased free will and discriminating judgment. So he's saying, I'm pretty much chalking this one up to fate. The way I got, the way I got on that ship with, with those people, the part that I was playing, I was meant to be. And so here he is, he's looking back and he says, when I think about the whole journey, I think that there was a reason that I ended up there. And so the rest of the story is going to be him telling what he has returned to tell us, right? Chief among these motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. So surely uh, there's something in Moby Dick himself that he was meant to, to, to encounter uh, that taught him something. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. Then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island bulk, the undeliverable nameless perils of the whale, these with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds helped to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I am tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. Ishmael is in, insatiably curious. Okay? He wants to learn everything there is to learn. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I am quick to perceive a horror, and could still be social with it would they let me, since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of the place one lodges in. By reason of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open, and in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul endless, endless processions of the whale, and midmost of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. And then we're off and running. So, in, in Loomings, uh, go read it again, and you'll see in there a lot, as you continue reading, more and more of what he, what he lays out in Loomings will, will make sense. Um, and we'll uh, take it from there. I do, before you go... We need to figure out the next time that we're going to meet. Um, is Thursday night okay? Like Thursday night in... in uh, let me get out my calendar. <laughs>